0: So listen to God's word as it's read, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word. Well, one of my favorite Christmas movies is Braveheart. Not really a Christmas movie, but I do love that movie. Probably not the best movie to watch for family movie night. If you're thinking about a Christmas movie for the family, maybe you should wait until the kids have gone to bed before you watch Braveheart. Um, one of the best scenes in that movie is uh, the Battle of Sterling. That's the first pitched battle between William Wallace and his Scottish rebels against the English Army And uh, they meet on a field and the English cavalry, armed to the teeth with armor and swords and spears, charge the Scottish rebels at full speed, coming at them with their swords and their spears aimed at the rebels who were much more scantily clad, you might say, and have much more uh, unsophisticated weapons. And really, it's such a wonderfully filmed scene. It's, it's quite harrowing. And William Wallace, as the cavalry charges him and his troops, continues to tell his men, wait, wait, wait. And I swear, it seems like they're from me to the Herndons, when he finally says, now, and the men reach down and grab the wooden spears that they've made and pull them up, just as the cavalry and their riders charge into the front lines, decimating and demolishing the oncoming army. It's, it's a, a great scene that pictures, I think, what the Apostle Paul and what God through Paul is asking of his people through these verses, and that is to stand, to stand firm. That's what this passage is about, standing firm. Some of what 2 Thessalonians teaches us is quite harrowing as well. Things we saw last week are, well, they're going to get bad, in this world. Uh, The powers of evil, they're going to assemble. They're going to come against the Lord and against his people. Verse 7 of chapter 2 says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Evil is at work in this world. There is a darkness that sometimes seems to overwhelm. But the promise of Advent, the promise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ will return and with the breath of his mouth, kill the man of lawlessness. And we saw last week, We can take comfort in that certain hope. But a question arises, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? It's good news that Jesus is coming back, but what about the now? Especially when the harrowing moments of life come at us like an enemy army. Paul tells us we are to stand firm. This is another great Advent lesson. Advent, as we've been Learning is a season of waiting and hoping. It's a season where we are proverbially or maybe literally in the darkness and waiting for the light to dawn. It's no coincidence that this is the time of year where we sang what we just sung. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. So the Spirit asks us this morning through this text, are you standing Are you standing firm? Are you building your life and your trust and your hope on the solid rock of Jesus' truth and love? And if so, what would that look like? The Lord teaches us and he calls us through these verses today. So I want to study them together with you for just the next couple of minutes. We see a, a call from the Lord to stand firm. And then we see three reasons why we can confidently do just that. In the power of the Lord. Let's look at this together. First, let's start in the middle. Verse fifteen. The Apostle Paul says, Stand firm, brothers, stand firm. That's the Lord's command to us. Those are his battle orders. We see in this chapter the future of the world. We don't see all the details, but we do see enough to know the disciples of Jesus that the people of God, we're going to have to face the darkness of this world. We're going to have to face the darkness of this world and, in the face of it, hold fast. The Scripture speaks of this regularly. The Apostle Peter, for example, in 1 Peter 5, writes this. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're told to stand firm again and again and again, but what does that mean? To stand firm means we are grounding our lives in God's trustworthiness. We're grounding our lives. We are bedrocking our lives in God's trustworthiness. Now, we all ground our lives, whether we admit it or know it or not, in something or someone. But Jesus tells us at the end of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, that only grounding your life on him and his teaching will help you resist the storms of evil that will hit. Listen to what Jesus famously says, Matthew chapter seven. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock we're called to stand firm against real evil, against wickedness, against darkness. You know, that's, that's one of the things I find so compelling about the Christian story. One of the things I love about Christianity is that Christianity is utterly realistic about the reality of the world. Christianity does not deny, it does not deny the deep and horrendous evil that this world constantly and daily deals with, and that each of us individually have from time to time experienced. Now, our culture today in the Western world struggles to come to grips with just how bad things can be. We don't generally, collectively want to admit that the world is, in fact, full of evil. We can trend towards naive optimism. We can trend towards a sort of biological Evolutionary response to the evil of the world, but none of those things really does justice to the feeling that evil provokes in our hearts. Robert Cole is a, an essayist who writes sometimes for the New York uh, Times Book Review, and uh, a number of years ago, right after 9 11, he uh, wrote an essay in which he was wrestling with this idea, with what philosophers historically have called the problem of evil and the atrocities of the 20th century, of which 9-11 was, in so many ways, sort of the capstone. And in this piece, Robert Cole writes this, listen, "...the 20th century has not treated optimism kindly. The devil has, in a sense, returned. Our struggle these days is to find a way of thinking about the radical evil that lives all too comfortably in our communities." Our usual secular pieties don't quite work in the face of our recent dark past. Christianity, on the other hand, the Christian gospel accounts in a way that's comprehensive and persuasive for the reality of evil in the world. And furthermore, it provides hope that evil will indeed be wiped out. And until that day comes... The scriptures completely and regularly tell us we are to stand against evil, to stand firm. so the question, of course, is how? How do we do that? Well, the repeated message that the Bible gives is that we stand firm by exercising faith, by, by believing, by trusting in God's promises to us. Look at how Paul puts it. He says here that we stand firm by verse 15, holding to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, of course, the tradition he refers to here is the apostolic message summarized in the Bible itself. We stand firm as we await Jesus's next advent by believing in the promises of the gospel that God has made to us. We ready ourselves and posture ourselves preparing for the onslaught of darkness by trusting into jesus and his promises a couple weeks ago i had the opportunity with my family to visit the beach along the texas coast and uh, it had been some time since we had been down to the beach and we arrived uh uh, late afternoon and immediately got into our bathing suits and went out towards the water and uh, i had Ben, my eight and a half year old with me here on my left and we walked straight out into the tide, into the ocean. And we got out to where, you know, the water's perhaps up to my waist or so, which means it's up to like Ben's shoulder. Perfectly safe, I assure you. What I didn't realize was that, you know, it's like on a red five when it comes to the strength of the current. And so this wave, which was pretty seismic, as I recollect it, is coming at us. And uh, I think, man, Ben, this is gonna be awesome. Let's get ready to play. And the wave hits, and I mean, it almost wiped me out. And then I looked down and Ben's just gone. Well, where'd Ben go? And so I kind of grab his ankle, and because I'm such a great dad. Grab his ankle, pull him in, and I'm thinking, man, we've got to steel ourselves. We've got to get ready for these ways because, man, that was forceful. That, that image, that picture is exactly what the Lord calls his people to here, to the activity of faithfulness, of, of holding fast to the gospel. This is of such central importance to our discipleship. The, the, the rest of these verses gives us truths that we are to stand firm in. The promises we are to believe. And, and listen, they are, I hope for you today, comforting. I hope today they're life-giving for you. Let's, let's look at them. We're called to stand firm first because God sovereignly saves you. We can stay on our feet when the waves hit. When we throw our entire lives into believing this reality, look, look at what Paul writes, verse 13. God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Here's what this teaches along with the rest of the New Testament. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, entrance into the renewal of all things that Jesus is bringing is something God does for us. It's something God does for us. He he gives it to us as a gift for free, which is why we so commonly hear speak of grace, getting what you don't deserve. In fact, getting the opposite of what you deserve. And indeed, salvation has to be this way because our sin is too strong and our rebellion is too consequential for us to gain salvation on our own we 're so helpless in fact that God does the work of saving from beginning to end. It starts Paul says here with him choosing us as the first fruits to be saved. What does that mean? It means the reason the reason that God saves the reason God gives grace the reason God loves sinners is because God chooses in the wonderful freedom of his sovereignty to place his affection on undeserving people. God's gracious electing purposes reframe our lives, Paul says, so that we experience the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, verse 13, and are able now to believe the truth of the gospel, he says. Can you hear what the Lord is saying to you through these verses? Because make no mistake about it, Jesus is speaking to us here. And may he give us ears to hear. What defines you and what defines your story more than anything else is God's sovereign saving love for you we can so easily fall, even if we've been believers for decades, into believing that the most significant thing about us is what we do. Maybe even our religious or spiritual works that we perform to others and so often unconsciously perform for God. But the gospel recasts that vision and tells us that this is not the case. No, the ultimate identity marker, if you're connected to Jesus in faith, the crowning identity marker of your life is God's electing saving love. It's a love given to you completely for free. What that does is create a profound tenderness, I hope, and intimacy in your relationship with God your Father. Here's how it does that. God does not say to you. God does not say, I love you because I found something in you that is lovable. Do the gospel calculus with me here. If God loved us because he found something better in us, And we'd always be in a tenuous position because we have this fear that we're going to lose his love if we somehow lose what it is that makes us better or more deserving. We'd never find his love to be what it is, a total miracle. But God does not say, I love you because you're serviceable to me. Nor does he say, I love you because you're more humble than others or because you're kinder than others or because you're more religiously committed than others. God says in the gospel through Jesus, I love you because I love you. That's perfect love. And believing that that is real for us, it creates the tenderness of the Spirit's work in our hearts. It's it's something, Paul says, that, that we can stand firm in. Build your rock, or excuse me, build your house on the rock. Of God sovereignly saving us. So we stand firm first by believing that God has placed his love on us because of his sovereign free grace. Second, we stand firm because God powerfully calls us. Look look at verse 14. To this salvation he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first truth that we're to stand firm in by faith is that God chose you for salvation and his love is what defines you. Now, the second truth to stand firm in by faith is about how, it's about how God makes this reality uh, present in our lives now. Paul's asking Christians here to remember what they have experienced. We've experienced, if you're in Jesus, the effective and loving call of God over our lives. Jesus calls us. In fact, he often describes his summons to uh, enter his kingdom as a call. Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, parentheses, this is Luke's edition, thank God, close parentheses, but sinners, Or consider how he speaks of his work in John chapter 10. I am, he says, the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, my call, and I know them, and they follow me. Have you experienced, have you experienced the call of Jesus? I'm not asking if you've been to church a lot recently. (laughs) And I'm not asking if you've been reading your Bible really faithfully. And I'm not asking if you can quote to me some questions and answers of the Westminster Catechism. What I'm asking is, have you heard Jesus call you? It's so common in our city for people to be around Jesus, to be familiar with Jesus, but never to have heard the call of Jesus, the voice of Jesus speaking to us personally in the Scripture. Have you responded? Have you responded? to God's call. How does that work? How does God call us? Well, Paul tells us right here. He says it's through our gospel. Verse 14. He says something very similar in Romans chapter 1 where he says that the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation, for anyone who believes it. And so... um, Jesus calls us to himself when this news about what has happened to him is proclaimed. Listen, all of us, all of us, from the day we're born by nature, are estranged from God. All of us, no matter what you've built externally in your life, are traitors, cosmic traitors against God, and rebels against against God. And all of us desire deep in our hearts to boot God off of his throne and to occupy it ourselves. And we know, we know deep down that this is true of us. Our desire to be little gods explains why we do what we do. It explains why we so easily and naturally act selfishly. It explains why we lie to make ourselves look better. It explains why we envy others. It explains why we're full of anger and lust. It explains why countries don't just naturally get along with each other. It explains why you lock your door at your house and why you lock the doors of your car. It explains why the powerful continue in so many ways to prey on the weak. All of this is a result of rebellion, a result of what the Bible terms sin. We're all corrupted by sin, and we're all guilty of sin, and we all deserve the just punishment of a righteous God, separation from him, exile forever. But instead of exiling sinners, which all of us deserve, God takes sin away. He takes sin away, both its guilt and its power, And God doesn't do this just by pretending that everything's okay, because everything most definitely is not okay, either in our lives or in our world. No, God takes away sin by paying its cost himself. He does this in the person of his son, Jesus, at Jesus' death on the cross. God forgives sin sin and Jesus in his resurrection proves that his sacrifice was enough to take away sin. And so the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they usher in the reign of God, the kingdom of God that everyone is invited into when they trust into Jesus, when they fall into Jesus in faith. And so by believing that news, that what happened to Jesus of Nazareth changes our standing before a holy God, and that we gain real righteousness by connecting to him, we're saved and brought into the fullness of God's kingdom life now. Not just accepting these as historical facts, not just assenting to the teachings of Jesus as a good philosopher and moral teacher, but relying on Jesus entirely venturing on him wholly because you're convinced that his call is the only way into the life that we all so deeply want and that we were all indeed made for. So right now, Jesus calls you. Right now. He speaks to you. Listen. Listen to the gospel. There's so many voices, so many voices that speak to us, but if you're in Christ, Jesus's call overpowers all of them when uh, Ben was in kindergarten. Ben featured in the sermon this morning. He's my favorite child. That's why. Um, It was a joke. Sorry, guys. Uh, When Ben was five years old in kindergarten, I I coached his basketball team. And uh, this is the first year Ben had played basketball. And if you've ever coached five-year-olds in basketball when their parents surround the courts with there's no bleachers, uh, you'll know that it is a cacophony of loudness and noises everywhere. And thank God coaches are allowed to be out on the court with kids when they're that young. And the most important thing, really the only thing that you try to do as a coach is just get the kids to hear anything you say. Because every dad in the world thinks, you know, he's um, Red Auerbach or Greg Popovich and is going to coach his kid from the sideline. There's just noise everywhere. It's bouncing off the walls. And so you're trying to get the kid to dribble. You're trying to get the kid to pass, which never happens, of course. You're trying to get the kid to shoot. And I remember just being like, this is ridiculous. No one can hear me. But when Ben would get the ball and I would say, Ben, he would listen. Why? Because he knows the voice of his dad. Ben, pass the ball. Ben, dribble the ball up the court. Ben, dunk on that kid. He he heard the voice of his father in the midst of all the noise. Can you hear the voice of Jesus? in the midst of the noise of your life. He's asking you to turn away from the hopeless life we all live apart from him. He's asking you to trust him, to cast everything on him. He summons you. He invites you. He pleads with you to come to him. So will you come? When you do come to Jesus, when you respond to his call, you enter into new life. And that's true in such a profound way that Paul can say there at the end of verse 14 that we obtain the glory of Jesus himself. What? The the last stop on the train of life with Jesus is to share in Jesus' glory, to enjoy God and be with him forever, as our forefathers have put it, to live a fully human life, free from shame and guilt and fear. That's a truth we can stand firm in. So build your house on the rock that God powerfully calls you. He sovereignly saves you. He powerfully calls you. Stand firm. The last thing Paul tells us, the last truth this morning for us to stand firm in is the truth that God lovingly comforts us. Look at verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us, past tense, you see that? Gave us eternal comforts and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I, this is my favorite part of this passage this week. It moved me as I studied it. Look at how Paul uses the word comfort there twice. I love this. In verse 16, he uses it in the past tense. God has already given us eternal comfort, he says. But there in verse 17, he uses it in the present tense, really in a prayer. Asking God to provide our hearts with comfort. It's it's as if our reliance upon the sure promise of what God has already done in comforting us helps us pray in faith for comfort now. Don't you need comfort in a year like this? Don't we need the comfort of the promise of Advent? Doesn't the promise of comfort help us stand firm? Uh, Comfort Something we all want. I think we can take that word the wrong way, though. I wonder what you imagine when you hear that word, comfort. That's a Christmassy word. And it can, I think, evoke maybe overly sentimental images. Now, I'm not against sentiment or sentimentalism, even. I'm the one that cries in every Christmas movie. You can ask my family. But the comfort of the Lord is, is not... I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know, comfort. That speaks of a nostalgic past we long to have again. Nor is the comfort of the Lord necessarily, have yourselves a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Our troubles are nowhere near out of sight. Comfort is not... Immediate relief of problems now. So what is the comfort that God promises? Isaiah tells us, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. About 400 years ago, a man named Johannes Olarius wrote, a hymn based on those verses. I love how he writes about comfort. Listen to what he says. She, that's the church, she hath suffered many a day. Now her griefs have passed away. God will change her pining sadness into everlasting gladness. Listen, the comfort of the gospel is that God in Christ is with us through all the hurts and sorrows of this life. He's shepherding us. He's piloting us. He's near us until we safely reach our final home. He's promised to be with us and to never leave us or forsake us and we can build our house on the rock that God in Jesus comforts us. Robert Louis Stevenson, the uh, poet and novelist, uh, tells a story of a, a ship, a vessel that was caught of a, on a, in a storm just off the, the really rocky coast of Scotland and Ireland. And, and the storm threatened to drive the ship and to drive the passengers into the shore into certain destruction. And in the middle of the terror, all of the passengers of the, sh- of the ship, except for the pilot, except for the captain, were told to go under deck and be safe. But one daring man just couldn't take it. And so he came up on the deck of the ship. And he made the the pretty dangerous trek from the spot where you come onto the deck into the pilot's house. And when he got there, he saw the steerman at his post, holding the wheel unwaveringly. And and slowly, inch by inch, he was turning the ship out once more into the sea. And the pilot uh, saw out of the corner of his eye this man who had come to watch him. And he looked at him and he smiled. And then the daring passenger made the trek back to below the deck and he gave out a note of really cheerfulness to all of the other passengers on board. He said, I've seen the face of the pilot. And he smiled. All's going to be well. Advent means Jesus has shown us his face. Jesus has shown us his face. And all's going to be well. It might not feel that way right now which is why you're asked to stand firm. God sovereignly saves you. He powerfully calls you. He's with you now, lovingly comforting you. Stand firm. Let's pray.